Hallelujah. You know, when, when things are challenging and difficult in life, then this rock and this goodness that you proclaim is a pretty big deal, isn't it? We were created for worship, weren't we? It's like the sooner you realize that you're created for worship, the sooner things go well for you. Because you end up worshiping something, don't we? That's what history tells us. That's what society shows us, right? You worship something. But when you tap into this eternal source and this eternal rock, then you can actually find peace and shalom in the midst of suffering, in the midst of, God, what are you doing, right? What are you doing? I don't understand it all. And yet you can still declare his goodness and that he's a rock that won't be moved. So thank you, worship team, for helping us declare who he is this morning. Sometimes it's real simple, and that is that we have to get our eyes off ourselves and onto the Lord, right? And that helps out a lot, to say the least. Well, Amen. You can be seated. Thanks for playing, Eric. Uh, yeah, children may de- be dismissed, the older kids, to their service. I'm going to speak through the portion this morning. We are on the second portion in Scripture called Noah, Noah, and we are in Genesis chapter 6, starting with verse 9, Genesis 6, 9. So Noah, as we know, uh, has some parallels with Adam, okay? We just had this big introduction to the Scripture called Bereshit in the beginning, and it's full of so much uh, about the character of God and his kingdom and, and history and creation. And then we get to Noah, and Noah in some sense is like a second Adam. We don't usually think of him in those terms because that's a term we use for Yeshua, but really he's very much like a second Adam. Interestingly, Noah was actually the first man born after Adam dies, if you crunch the numbers. So it's interesting because he actually can represent new life. He can represent new creation, right? I mean, what happens with the story of Noah if not new life and new creation that comes through him and from him, right? And so there's this Uh, newness of life, and you begin to see even some new covenant language 
through Noah himself, and of course we can all trace our ancestry, Jew and Gentile, back to Noah, quite interestingly. And he parallels Adam in other ways, which I think is interesting for the story this week, in the sense of Adam had this special relationship with the physical creation, right? With the animal kingdom. He names the animals. What does he name them? I don't know, but he names the animals, meaning what language is he speaking, right? The rabbis say Hebrew. Of course, right? But then Noah also has this special relationship with animals, does he not? A very special relationship, so much so he actually is a part of their deliverance and salvation. All right, let's pick up. I'm just, that was just a little background. Let's pick up in Genesis 6 9. I wish we could just do a line by line study of the entire portion. That would be fun. If you want to st- stick around, maybe we can. I'm prepared. These are the genealogies of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, he was blameless among his generation. Noah continually walked with God. So a couple interesting points just to begin. Uh, Three different things. Number one, he is a righteous man. He's a tzaddik in Hebrew, okay? And this is important uh, because he's what? He's this covenantally faithful man who knows God, right? And we see this parallel in other great men throughout Scripture In fact, we think of Abraham, and the famous passage about Abraham is what? That he trusted in God, or he believed in God, and it was accredited to him as righteousness. That's tzedakah, that's the same word. He was a tzaddik, okay? Then we see that he was blameless in the text. And in Hebrew, the word blameless is tamim, and the word tamim is taken from the sacrificial system. And when you think of the sheep, How were the sheep uh, to be? They had to be what? Unblemished or perfect. There's different ways to translate it. But it's the same word. It's tamim. That he was this perfect uh, sacrifice, but not sacrifice, but this unblemished, if you will, character, this unblemished person before God. And then we see that as well in Genesis chapter 17, which is part of the Abrahamic covenant. And you see that in Genesis 17, verse 1, he actually says to Abraham, he says to him, be blameless and walk with me. That's what he says to Abraham. So Abraham is commanded, there's actually our expectations in the Abrahamic covenant. Maybe we'll get to this next week. Many people talk about Abrahamic, it's this unconditional, and man doesn't have to do anything. But that's not what unconditional means Unconditional means no matter if we follow the commandments or not, God will be faithful to keep the covenant. Do you hear what I'm saying? It doesn't mean, unconditional doesn't mean we don't have any requirements in the covenant and we just get all the blessings. No, that's not what it means. There's this big misconception on unconditional versus conditional covenant. But all, co- all covenants are unconditional from God's perspective. Because he is a covenant, faithful God, right? He changes not. So he doesn't change based on our faithfulness or unfaithfulness. Make sense? So, 
back to uh, our text. Noah continually walked with God. So this is this extra point here you see. And even in the Abrahamic covenant, as I just pointed out, Genesis 17.1, he says, walk with me, right? And then he says it here as well that this is the type of man that Noah was, that he walked with God. And then even if you think of Adam, you think of Adam in that he was walking with God in the cool of the day. Or at least you can think of that happening because he does talk about him walking in the garden, right? So this is interesting because if you haven't thought about it before, God is walking in the garden, so who is in the garden walking with Adam? Yeshua, right? No man has seen the Father, so Yeshua, somebody is walking in the garden. Hello, that's a big deal. So we, we have Yeshua from the very beginning, and then we have him again walking with Noah, and of course Abraham, and on and on. Now, why am I bringing this up? I'm bringing all of this up to say, very simply, it's clear that Noah has a covenantal relationship with God, right? He has a relationship with God, which is why he calls him blameless and why he calls him a tzaddik, a righteous man. He has a covenantal relationship with Yeshua, with God. Okay, let's keep moving on. Verse 10. Noah fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was ruined before God, and the earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth, and behold, it was ruined, because all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all the flesh is coming before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Behold, I am about to bring ruin among them along with the land. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with compartments and smear pitch on it, both inside and out. Now this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a roof for the ark, and you shall finish it to within a cubit from the top. You shall keep listening. Don't tune out. You shall make it with lower second and third stories. And now I am about to bring the flood, water upon the land, to destroy all flesh, in which is the spirit of life from under the sky. Everything that is on the land will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you. So that was our Torah reading for this morning. Basically, first of all, I want to point out something is that raise your hand if you would like to receive judgment today. Nobody raises their hand. Well, first of all, I want to point out something because the context here of the flood narrative is about what? It's about judgment, you could say, right? But here's one thing about judgment that we don't think about. We have to in this story, and that is that not all judgment is negative. Right? Not all judgment is negative. In fact, there's very positive judgment here that happens with Noah, right? Because Noah has a what? He has a covenant. He has a relationship with God, and so he is judged for good, right? In fact, that's what we just had this big season of the return of Yeshua. 
which is really, and we talk about, may you be inscribed and sealed for a good year, right? That's the traditional thing, the greeting that you give, because it's about being judged for the coming year or being judged for good. So we actually want to be judged. In fact, we were created for judgment. Now that sounds strange, unless you realize that judgment is intended to be for good. He wants to judge in our favor. He's doing everything he possibly can in your life to get you to choose him without violating your free will. He wants you to choose him, but he won't make you do that. He's a gentleman. He wants true love. Can you make a girl like you? Can you make a man want to pursue you? It doesn't work that way. That's not love. That's bondage, right? That's slavery. That's not love. So he desires this covenantal relationship. He wants to judge in our favor. So when we look at the ark, interestingly, we see this ark is this picture of deliverance from destruction, right? Deliverance from destruction. That's what the ark is. And in fact, the word uh, in, in Hebrew is teva. And teva is used one other place in Scripture. And the one other place it's used is the same word as the basket that Moses is placed in when he's a young, young boy. And that that little basket becomes his deliverance from destruction as well, right? So there's this very uh, uh, easy parallel in Hebrew that you see of this uh, deliverance from destruction. And I'm pointing all that out to see this macro-level picture I want you to see about the flood story. And that is that the flood actually parallels this end-time destruction. It parallels the end times in general. I mean, the end of the end times. We've been in the end times for about 2,000 years, okay? But this parallels the end of the end times. And here's how it parallels it. It parallels it because there's this deliverance that comes right at the end of this mass destruction as well. Okay? Do you see the comparison? In fact, in 2 Peter 3, there is even this reference to the flood, but in the end, it's going to be with fire, it talks about. Now, the, you know, sometimes you'll hear people say this, it's all going to burn. Has anybody ever heard that? It's all going to burn, right? And so there's this, especially there's within parts of uh, uh, Christendom, there's this anti-environmental thing. It doesn't matter, it's all going to burn. But what's interesting is that when you really think about it, because Peter, in that passage, when he talks about the fire and the burning, actually wrote a paper on this, that he parallels it to the flood. But what do we see in the flood? It's not ultimate annihilation of the entire earth, is it? In fact... New life springs up after this cleansing, this purification, if you will. And if you know anything about forest fires, that's actually the same thing that happens. And in fact, healthy forests have to have forest fires occasionally, if you didn't know that. Because otherwise, all this undergrowth grows up, and it grows up, and it grows up, and then when a a fire does come, it will actually burn the big trees because there's so much underbrush that actually makes it get hotter and does this major damage to the forest. 
where if there's periodic fire, it actually leaves the big trees and gets rid of the, the riffraff. That's the technical term. <laughs> Point being that the, this parallels this end-time uh, judgment, this end-time destruction, and then ushers in the millennial kingdom. It ushers in this eternal Sabbath. And what's interesting when we see uh, about this picture of the ark is that the word, when it talks about to smear pitch, okay, and it's, uh, I imagine, some sort of black tar, and you, you put it in between the wood to help, uh, you know, water not get in or something like that, right? Again, I'm not very scientific, but something like that, right? And in Hebrew, it's really interesting because the verb smear and the noun pitch has a root that is the root, the same word. It's called kiper. And kiper is the same word as yom kippur. And kiper or kippur means atonement. Right? And atonement means to cover. Right? So it's understood here, right, that it's covering the ark with pitch. And there's this, if you're a Hebrew reader, you you're immediately see this connection to atonement. So the ark acts as this atonement, this salvation, if you will, of Noah and his family, and in that sense of humanity. And then the final one, because there's a lot, there's so much, especially in early Genesis, where the Hebrew brings so much to life, because it's kind of like God's compacted all this time in history into a few chapters. So you really, if you look at the Hebrew behind it, it really expounds upon what he's actually saying. So forgive me if you're a little challenged by the Hebrew. But then this last part, which is also this obvious connection, is that the name Noah, Noach, means rest. And in fact, if you look back in uh, chapter 5, verse 29, it says, and he named him Noah. This is talking about Lamech, his father. And this one will comfort us from our work and from the pain of our hands because of the ground which Adonai cursed. So even when he was named, when he was born, there was this calling that he would bring comfort. He would bring uh, rest to humanity. So Noah fulfills this purpose to a certain extent. We could get into to more about what's talking about there. But as he brings all of uh, humanity and creation into uh, peace and rest. Now, clearly, it's not the ultimate millennial reign. I mean, we're talking about a picture and a shadow of what would come, right? Okay, now, question. And if you're in my class the other night, don't answer this question. But we did just read it. What was the cause of the flood? What was the reason for the flood? What was the reason for this catastrophic destruction? And just yell it out, it's fine. Sin, yes. What else? What did you say? Violence. Violence. That's right. So the text, yes, it's sin, but the text says violence. Now, what's interesting in Hebrew is that this word for violence is Hamas, which is interesting, right? Maybe you've heard of Hamas. One of their charters is to actually uh, destroy the Jewish people, to kill the Jewish people, and we're dealing with it 
especially recently in Israel. We've had this escalation, if you're not aware, of stabbings in particular. And just to give my, my two minutes on that, a lot of times people have problems with the checkpoints throughout Israel. The reason we're having stabbings is because they can't get guns and bombs inside of Israel proper. So they've resorted to knives. So anyway, the, although the checkpoints cause you know, inconvenience, if you would quit trying to kill people, then it, would, you know, it wouldn't be necessary, if you will. So just a very practical thing. But when it comes to Israel, people throw their brains out the window. It's true. It's talking, we're talking about demonic realities. Okay. So this word Hamas means bloodshed. This word Hamas uh, also is connected to uh, injustice, lawlessness. And what we began to see in this period just before Noah is really this devaluing of human life. And Rich and I were even talking about this the other day. And what happens is, is when you begin to devalue human life, you'll do anything, right? Of course, you know, sexual assault would, would come after you devalue human life and, you, and every other sin on the earth, right? I mean, you see it in, in historically, you see it in, of course, Nazi Germany, but you see it today as well with ISIS. They don't just kill Christians, right? They're doing a lot of other very bad things. And there's many, many eyewitness testimonies of all the other sins under heaven, out of hell, you could say, that they're doing. My point is uh, connecting to uh, why there was this final destruction. And then I wanted to point out that in this week's gospel portion, was Matthew chapter 5, which how do we not teach out of Matthew 5? I don't know because it's the portion of Noah. But Matthew 5, we have, I'll just say one thing, and that is that Yeshua was teaching about murder, which is connected in with the flood here. And Yeshua says that if you even have anger in your heart towards your brother, it's as if you have murdered them, right? So Yeshua doesn't, replace the law with grace. He doesn't do away with the law. He actually ramps it up. There's actually this intensified application of the Torah. There's an intensified application of the Torah. Why? Because through the new covenant, through this uh, relationship with Yeshua, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit for life and godliness. We are empowered for obedience. Now we have the ability to live and move in in complete unity with our Creator. And so we're able to uh, be like the Creator as the creation. So what we see here in this Noah passage is if you've heard of the Noahide laws, is that the rabbis started to look behind and into the Hebrew and into the early chapters here of Noah and before, and we're seeing this universal law for all of humanity, right? Because there are no Jews yet. There's no Mount Sinai yet, but there's clearly law, right? God floods and destroys the entire earth. 
So clearly, there's consequence, there are consequences for sin prior to Mount Sinai. Do you hear me? It's obvious in the text, okay? So there are universal laws. There's, uh, uh, what do you call them? Fundamental human rights, okay, that we talk about today. And this, we, can, we could talk about Acts 15. We could go into the Noahide laws, but I won't. What I want us to see is jumping down to uh, verse 22. says this, So Noah did according to all that God commanded him. He did exactly. Now what's interesting about this to me is that there's a lesson to be learned from Noah, very simply, and that is obedience. Now, Rich has been having this series, equipping series on hearing the voice of the Lord, right? And the Lord speaks to us in all these different ways. And yet, at the end of the day, if we hear the Lord, we speak to the Lord, we quote the Bible, we know the Bible, we recognize that He's doing this and that and the other, if we're not obedient, it's all for naught, right? So that's point number one. Obedience. Surely we know that, but I'll point it out because that's a big lesson uh, that we see in the story of Noah. And there are clearly big consequences here. Secondly, it's interesting to me because while there is this list of covenantal expectations that we have, okay? Noah was a righteous man. He's blameless before God, okay? So when God looked at Noah, he's like, yeah, Man, he, he's, he doesn't do these terrible things, right? But was on that list, and he creates boats, and he does this, and right? I mean, building a boat isn't a part of this like list of do's and don'ts. Do you see what I'm saying? It was above and beyond, right? It's above and beyond. I mean, the rabbis even say that he had to plant the trees first. Whether that's true or not, I think it's interesting, you know? It's like, I want you to build a boat. All right, well, well, how do I do that? Plant a tree. Talk about sowing. Rich was talking about how we're in such a hurry, right? This is agrarian life. I mean, according to the text, it hasn't even rained yet. He's like, it's going to flood the earth. What are you talking about? Right? But he obeys the Lord over long periods of not quite getting it, we would call faith, maybe, trust, right? But really, it was the outworking of his relationship, right? It's because he, you don't trust somebody you don't know, right? You ever meet somebody and they, they like want to trust real fast, and you're kind of like, look, you're, you seem to be a great person, but I don't know you right? Let's get to know each other and we'll build some trust. And then sort of lastly, that's kind of like heading towards the conclusion. Uh, What's interesting to me in this lessons from the flood is that there's this partnership in his deliverance, right? That, okay, it's not just this Oh, God, change my life. You know, dear God. Right? It's this partnership in his deliverance. He's like, oh, great. You really love me, Rich. I'm so glad. Go plant a tree, brother. It's like, 
really, Lord? What? That's not very holy. That's not very religious. He's like, go plant a tree. I love that. He's a hippie. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but Noah had to build the boat, right? And even if the trees are all there right away, can you imagine what it's like to build a boat without electricity? I mean, we're talking about a lot of this right here, you know? I mean, it's one thing to be a carpenter, but this is a whole different level, right? Build the boat. That sounds like a lot of work, Lord. It's like, oh, I thought you wanted to be saved. I thought you wanted to be delivered. Marjorie just showed us it doesn't just come like this, does it? You have to work for it. You have to hunger for it. You have to not be satisfied where you are. Oh, there's more. And God's saying, yes, there's more, but you have to partner with me, right? So what's interesting is that we see that Noah, in a certain sense, models Yeshua, the second Adam understanding, in that he helps lead humanity into salvation, right? And yet, at the same time, Noah is also like, he's imperfect, right? So he, he's not Yeshua. And yet God uses Noah to bring salvation. Now this is interesting, because sometimes people have a problem with Israel, and Israel being connected with salvation, this mechanism for salvation, right? Because they're imperfect. They're a bunch of sinners. Well, so was Noah. He wasn't, he wasn't perfect. He was human. And yet God is using imperfection to manifest his kingdom. He's bringing imperfection to bring salvation. In fact, the story of all of the Bible is what? It's God using imperfect people to expand and bring... How many of you... I'll ask it this way. I stopped my sentence. How many of you... Somebody actually led you to the Lord. Raise your hand. Were that, was that person perfect? Wow. God, the story of humanity is God using imperfection to point us to perfection. It's a story of partnership and relationship. Right? There's this covenantal relationship and then he wants to partner with us to bring salvation to the rest of the earth. Because destruction is coming. Justice, we'll say it this way, justice is coming. So you, it could be for positive or for negative, right? It depends upon the relationship. Which is why Yeshua says, uh, Depart from me, for I never knew you, right? Depart from me, you didn't have a covenantal relationship with me. So this should put the fear of God in us, looking at the story of Noah. Because sometimes there's this like overly loving Tolstoy Jesus, hyper grace, however you want to say it, as if there isn't destruction coming. And we need to look at the story of Noah and learn 
that yes, judgment is coming, but it shouldn't bring fear. That's the problem with, the, you know, some people read, they get all scared about Revelation or something. The point of Revelation is follow the Lamb. It's the same as it is to Noah, right? It's have this relationship with the Lamb and you're going to be just fine. But judgment's coming whether you die now, whether you died a thousand years ago, whether it's a thousand, it's the same story, right? Okay. That's end of sermon one. We're going to take the Lord's table, so I'm just going to kind of present this other part of Noah heading into the Lord's table. Is that okay? I mean, Noah has 150,000 messages in it. Exactly that number, yep. I saw you, Sam. So what I want to point out with Noah, and as we enter into this, there's so many ways to approach the Lord's table. But we'll do it through the Noahic covenant to a certain extent. First of all, I want to point out simply that there wasn't just two of every kind of animal. If you read the text, it says in 7 verse 2, of every clean animal you shall take with you seven of each kind, male and female. So there's actually 14 clean animals. And this is before Moses. This is before the sacrificial official representation of the sacrificial system. We already have clean and unclean. Interesting. Secondly, let's look at, and we'll read uh, Genesis 9, verse 3 through 6. So Noah is making this covenant. He comes off of the ark after he has been saved, right, delivered, and he makes this burnt offering, and God says he will establish, and he's establishing this covenant with Noah, with his descendants, uh, and, and it says with, actually, uh, the animals as well, uniquely in the Noahic covenant. He tells them to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, which is part of this similar covenantal expectation that we saw with Adam and Eve. We won't have time to get into that, sadly. But verse 3 says this, Every crawling thing that is alive will be food for you, as are the green plants. I have now given you everything, only flesh with its life, that is, its blood, you must not eat. Surely your lifeblood will I avenge. From every animal and from every person will I avenge it. From every person's brother will I avenge that person's life. He can see Yeshua here as the blood avenger, right? Then verse 6, the one who sheds human blood, by a human will his blood be shed. We're talking about shedding uh, innocent blood here. For in God's image, he made humanity. So first of all, a part of this Noahic covenant that's very important for us to see is that there is this sanctity and deference to blood. And remember, God just flooded the whole earth because of Hamas, right? Because of bloodshed. And he's saying, this, was, this is no way to live. This can't be like this. So he is making it clearer the sanctity and the importance of blood, and that blood, as we will see, equals life. And in connection with that, we have this issue of 
he, in this passage I just read, he allows them now to eat animals, right? Whereas with Adam, he ate uh, seed-bearing. He was either a vegetarian or a frugivore, depending on if you even know what that means. It's like they eat fruit only. But people argue what he was. But either way, he's allowed to eat animals now. So the question is, why, uh, why was Adam not allowed to eat meat? Ever asked that question? So, I, I mean, there's probably many answers, but I would suggest one reason is that God is beginning to manifest himself into time and history through progression, and now he's emphasizing clearly the importance of blood. And we, you saw that he killed animal skins, right, when they sinned. They tried to cover themselves with fig leaves, and God said, that isn't going to do it, right? He doesn't actually say that, but I mean... He, he says, no, you need animal skins, and he kills them. So there is blood that's shed there, but we don't have this long expansion of atonement and all this in the text, right? But then as it progresses, we get to see here that he's saying the blood is, is life. Blood is, is, is uh, important. It's the very essence of, um, of humanity, and even it's this mechanism for atonement, and redemption. And so they're allowed to eat animals, but only if the blood is appropriately handled, right? That's what it says in the text. And I'm pointing this out because I think if I had time to go through the covenants, what I could show you is that through the covenants, God begins to expand upon this, this uh, importance of blood. And now he's allowing meat to be eaten. And then what do we see as we move to the Mosaic Covenant is that you have this sacrificial system where the priest actually eats the sacrifice, right? And then we have this connection that begins to point us to this covenantal meal. And we see this in Genesis as well, right? Where the covenant begins to connect with a meal. And now you can actually participate in the sacrificial system, and then it eventually points us to Yeshua himself, and we're able to enter into the covenant, we're able to enter into this one perfect sacrifice through the sanctity and deference of the blood of Yeshua, and we can actually uh, eat, I mean, we eat bread, but it's connecting in with actually participating with the ultimate uh, atonement and sacrifice. So, I don't know, I said it really fast, but hopefully you can see it's really interesting how God just slowly grows this perspective and understanding of blood ultimately to be made perfect and manifest in this blood of Yeshua. I mean, the whole sacrificial system, you know how much blood is spilled in the sacrificial system? It is a lot of blood. I mean, they drained it into the Kidron Valley. I mean, it was just so much blood. Why? So much blood. And we're so disconnected from blood today, right? I had this one teacher, and he said that what, uh, what the church is missing today is the stench of blood in the sanctuary. 
And so there's this importance of Yeshua's blood so much that he put together this whole sacrificial system so that we could begin to see, oh, okay, blood's really important. I'm starting to get it. Blood's really important, right? I mean, he, he does that for us. Blood is really important. And then he says, I'm going to pour out my blood for you, right? I'm going to give myself as this perfect uh, atonement. Because what's interesting with the sacrificial system, of course, is that it says in Hebrews that the blood of bulls and goats, what? Anyone? It, does, it can't take away sin. Wait a minute. The, I, I thought the Jews sacrificed to take away their sin. No, only God takes away sin, right? So the sacrificial system is this, well, it's really this earthly presentation of a heavenly original. It's to connect us with this spiritual reality of Yeshua's ultimate forgiveness and shed blood, right? So it was all to point to Yeshua. Every, all that blood that was spilled, I mean, there's been probably millions and millions of animals, all to point to Yeshua's once and for all sacrifice. I mean, I wonder if you could somehow quantify the gallons of blood that he had spilled all to point to his blood. So I'm saying all that to help us to just connect with Yeshua's ultimate um, sacrifice for us. And that he did all of that for us just to help us understand what happened on the cross. That it wasn't just that all of a sudden some, someone happened to die 2,000 years ago, but that there was context and that there was... Um, not just context, but there was history that built the context to his ultimate sacrifice. So as we enter into the Lord's table, I want us to think about this morning in particular his blood that was shed and the thousands of sacrifices and the sins that all led up to that moment in history and how big of a deal that was. So I'm going to bless the Lord for the elements and then maybe if we could just play for just a a couple minutes and let us just prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. So Lord, we thank you for this once and for all sacrifice, Lord. This crescendo in history, this penultimate event of your sacrifice that you... You chose history to, re, to slowly reveal the, the seriousness and the enormity of the fact that you were the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. What does that even mean, Lord? And yet you, 
you're so kind and you're so gracious to help us to even wrap our finite minds around the infinite God manifesting himself into time and history, all for this relationship with us. Who are you, God? Who are you that you would do this for us? How do we have a relationship with the infinite God? That he, he spoke to me this morning. He probably spoke to you today also. That is good news. So Lord, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for your body. Just going to add a little blessing taken from some of the early disciples of Yeshua, the Didache. So we thank you, our Father, for the life and for the knowledge that you made known to us through your servant Yeshua. Yours is the glory forever. And just as this piece of bread was scattered over the mountains and gathered together, so may your assembly be gathered from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. For yours is the glory and the power through Yeshua forever. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth, new life from the earth, Lord. We celebrate your resurrection from the dead. That you conquered death. That you brought deliverance from destruction, Lord. Just like you did to Noah. We thank you, our Father, for the holy vine of your servant David, that you made known to us through your servant Yeshua. Yours is the glory forever. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, borei peri hagafen. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. Lord, may we abide in you, you are the vine, we are the branches. May we bear much fruit, Lord. May we be obedient to your, our covenantal relationship with you. May we not just be satisfied with the minimum expectations, Lord, but may we desire to manifest your kingdom. May we not even be um, held back by our own inadequacies and, and weaknesses, Lord. May we realize that even in our imperfection, you still desire to use us. That doesn't disqualify us. But may we just run back to you in repentance, Lord. May you just restore our relationship with you this morning. May you live and move and have your being in us. May we manifest your kingdom, manifest the good news. In the name of Yeshua, may we be cleansed. Amen.